All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday service. It's your first time here. My name is Thomas. I'm one of the pastors at this church. And we're glad that you could join us today. If you've been with us for the past few weeks, you know we've been going through a sermon series called The Journey of Faith. And pretty much we've been spending the past four weeks looking at what we call like a spiritual map of what it looks like to grow and to walk with Jesus. And we, rec- we suggested that in the map that we're looking at, there tends to be, generally speaking, six stages that people go through. And the past three weeks, we looked at the first three stages. Uh, stage one, we talked about it is a recognition of God. So how do you follow Jesus? Well, usually it's uh, people call it conversion recognizing that there's more to this life than what we see biologically. There is something called a a God who created everything. There's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And that's typically what a season that a lot of Christians go through to enter this journey. And then after that, there's stage two, which is a life of discipleship. Now that there's a God, well, what does it look like to follow him? What does it look like to be in relationship with him? And that's where all the practices come in, reading your scriptures, prayer, fasting, worshiping. And then last week, we looked at what was called stage three, the active life or a life of service. This is where after knowing who God is, after following him, we now serve others. We love our neighbors. We love and build up the church. We love those around us. And so those are stages one to three. And most Christians and most churches stop here. This is the end for most people. You become a Christian, you do the practices or the disciplines, you serve, you become a leader, you become a pastor, and that's it. And that's the end of the journey. And what I want to talk about today is making the suggestion that this is only the halfway point. There is so much more to the Christian life that I feel most Christians don't know about, where we haven't even never experienced or even aware that there is such a deepness that's there awaiting us in this journey with Christ. And so to talk about what we call the fourth stage, we're going to be looking at this passage in the Old Testament. It comes from 1 Kings chapter 19, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 18. It's a little bit longer today, but don't worry. The sermon, I don't think, is going to be that much longer. But we're going to be looking at this passage, and here at our church, we believe that when we read the scriptures, that our God is alive and living, and he's speaking to us. So can we all rise together as we read this passage from 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 to 18? So starting verse 1, it writes, Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, may the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah became afraid and he immediately ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there, but he went on a day's journey into the wilderness He sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I have had enough. Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. Suddenly, an angel touched them. The angel told him, get up and eat. Then he looked, and there at his head was a loaf of bread baked over hot stones and a jug of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord returned for a second time and touched them. And he said, get up and eat, or the journey will be too much for you. So he got up, ate, and drank, and then, on the strength from that food, he walked 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. He entered a cave and there spent the night. Suddenly, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord, God of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, tore down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are looking for me to take my life. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain, in the Lord's presence. At that moment, the Lord passed by, 
a great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering cliffs before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after a fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? I have been very zealous for the the Lord, God of armies, he replied, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, tore down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they're looking for me to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, go and return by the way you came to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you are to anoint Hazael as king over Aram. You are to anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abba Meholah, as a prophet in your place. Then Jehu will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Jehu. But I will leave 7,000 in Israel, every knee that has not bowed to, to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is a reading of God's word. Let me pray for us before we begin. Lord, we invite your spirit to be here, to stir in our hearts, to speak, and for us to sense your presence at this time. In your son's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Anybody in this room live in LA for a long period of time before? Any LA people? A couple of people. Yeah, LA, it's rough out there. It's rough to live in LA. I know for me, I'm a suburb guy. I enjoy the suburbs. LA is loud, it's noisy, it's trafficy. But you know what's also really tough about LA? The churches. Man, it's hard to find a church in LA. There's some good ones, there's a lot of bad ones. There's a lot of them, and it's kind of confusing where to find a church. And so sometimes, often, when people would come to me saying, Hey, I moved out to LA, is there a church that you'd recommend that I go to? Years ago, the church that I would always recommend to people was a church called Pacific Crossroads, PCC. And the reason why I always recommend that church was because I really liked their pastor. His name was Rankin Wilborn. Maybe some of you heard of him, maybe some of you haven't, but PCC, it was a thriving church that met at Santa Monica High School. Rankin, he was a phenomenal preacher, gospel-centered in his preaching, culturally engaging. He wrote a book called Union with God, one of the best books I read in the past two years or so, just really helpful, super rich in its theology. And so personally for me, whenever I was on vacation or wanted a break, sometimes when I go visit a different church, I would always make my way to PCC, all the way out in Santa Monica. Sometimes when I'm driving, I just listen to Rankin's sermons on a podcast because I just felt really blessed when I heard his preaching. And I always pay attention to what PCC was doing on social media. I'd be like, oh, that's cool. They're serving the city. They're doing a lot of good. It was really inspiring to watch that church. Fast forward to today, Rankin Wilborn, he is no longer the pastor at PCC. In fact, Rankin Wilborn, he's no longer a pastor anymore. And the reason why is because he actually explained uh, back in a few months ago, he, he posted his testimony of what had happened. And his testimony, it's called, quote, make your mess your message. And pretty much what he explained was there was no sexual scandal that took place. There was no money laundering that was happening in that church. Instead, what actually happened was there was a lot of brokenness. He mentioned how even though PCC on the outside it looked really successful, thriving church, inside high-stress work environment, the staff was just stressed out. Staff slowly resigned. In fact, they all resigned at one point. There's a lot of conflict in the church leadership. There's even accusations of abuse. And Rankin pretty much he got deposed, or meaning he got removed as the pastor. And when you look at the situation, you're like, how did this happen? Like Rankin, he's a pastor. He believed in Jesus. He wrote books about Jesus. He served Jesus. And there's a lot of fruit and thriving happening. 
And he explains actually in his testimony what he felt happened after years of soul searching. And this is what he says on the screen. He says, quote, while I sincerely believed that my ambition was for the glory of God, but beneath that persona, I was filled with fear and restlessness. I was highly theologically educated. I knew the right words to say and how to say them. But I also happened to be highly defensive and terrified of genuine vulnerability. He keeps going. I had no idea what I was, I was using my words and intellect, even my theology, like armor to protect myself and hide. My strategies, they had served me well all my life. They'd always worked until they didn't. I needed help. I know most of us, we aren't pastors, and maybe a lot of us, it may not be as dramatic of a scenario that we go through where we probably won't post our testimonies like Rankin did, but I feel like some of us, we could relate to this. A lot of you, you grew up in the church, you believe in God, you trust in him, you sing the songs, you read your Bible, you serve, you became a leader, you are a leader in the church, you have things generally figured out in life. And yet, if you're really honest with yourselves, man, if you deep down, there is something there inside of you, underneath the surface, filled with a lot of fear, a lot of pain, a lot of wounds, a lot of trauma, and it leaks in moments of hardships. It leaks in moments when life is challenging. But for the most part, you try to stuff it down. You're protecting yourself. You protect yourself by apathy, by being kind of too cool for school. Or a lot of us here, we protect ourselves with humor. We just make joke and jokes and make light of everything. Or we protect ourselves by just being busy and accomplishment and achieving. But there's going to come a time where you just can't hide anymore. There comes a time in a lot of people's lives where something happens where all that just gets unleashed and you start to notice all the pain and the struggle and the things you've been bearing for the longest time, the ways you've been coping for the longest time, all the addictions that you've been using to kind of mask all of that. And what happens is going to be interesting is in that moment, oftentimes God is very absent. Like how does everything you learn about God like apply? And oftentimes he doesn't. He seems really irrelevant. What do you do when you're in that season? What do you do when you're in that stage? Welcome to stage four. This is stage four of the journey. Uh, often people call this the journey inward. This is the stage most Christians avoid because it's a lot easier learning things about God than letting God learn things about you, being open in your heart, being open with what's happening inside of you. Stages one to three, a lot of it's very external. A lot of stage one to three, you're doing things. And again, you're learning about God. But stage four, this is where the challenge begins. It's a lot more internal. This is where it's not about doing, but it's about surrender. And this is a stage for a lot of us where it's not about learning about God, but really it's just letting God do a deep dive in your heart. Stage four, it's a stage that does not take place often until you do stages one, two, three. By the way, people say that each stage tends to be about 10 years each. So if you're like 20-year-old going like, I'm in stage five, probably not. Usually stage four begins for a lot of people when you're in your mid-30s, 40s or so because it just takes a long journey to just even walk with God. But then usually what happens is you're really comfortable in those first three stages until a crisis happens. Usually people enter stage four by humbling themselves, which is very rare, or some crisis happens that just forces you to do a deep dive into what's going on in your heart. 
Usually people who are in stage four, they're really tired and they're really burnt out. And it's not just you need a nap, but like something about your soul is super weary. Usually stage four, this is a stage where you encounter the wall. And we're going to talk about the wall all of next week. And stage four is the longest and oftentimes the most painful stage that Christians go through. It is this long, painful journey, and not many people make it. Why is it so painful? Like, what makes stage four so hard? And the reason why is because this is a stage you're going to practice true vulnerability, to be truly vulnerable with God. And if we're honest with ourselves, we're not vulnerable with anybody. I meet a therapist regularly. I'm not even vulnerable to him. I just tell him things. But to get vulnerable, it is so hard and painful. And a lot of us here, we are not nearly as vulnerable with people, with our spouses, with ourselves, or even with God. But it is in these moments where a crisis comes that all of a sudden something happens. Your defenses go down. You have no choice but to be vulnerable. And even though that's really hard and scary to go through, this is where true intimacy can begin. This is where you can truly not just know, but believe God loves you for you. What does this look like? What does it look like for someone to experience stage four? First Kings 19, we see a story about the prophet Elijah, and we see him experiencing this stage. I know chapter 19, the passage we just read, it's like, what's going on here? A little bit of context Elijah, he was a prophet. This was back in the 9th century BC where he was a prophet for the northern nation of Israel. And Israel at this time, the people of God, they were practicing idolatry for a long time. And what made it worse was there was this king named Ahab and his wife Jezebel. They were like the worst. And they made Israel practice not just idolatry, but they worship Baal or Baal, however you want to pronounce that. And Elijah, he wasn't happy because he's a prophet. And Elijah's role is to restore Israel spiritually, and he wanted them to worship Yahweh. And so in the chapter right before the chapter we read, in 1 Kings 18, Elijah challenges King Ahab, and all of a sudden he's battling all these prophets. There's about 850 Baal prophets coming, and here's a famous picture in the 17th century. It's on the screen up here where it depicts what 1 Kings 18 looks like. So this is like a picture of like the battle between Elijah and between these 800 prophets. And what happens is Elijah goes, let's see whose God is real. Is Yahweh real or is, is Baal real? And so the way it's going to work work is let's go up this mountain at Mount Carmel, and we're both going to cry out to our gods, and let's see who brings on the fire. The 800 prophets, they're like screaming at Baal, cutting themselves, asking God to bring down the fire. Nothing. And then Elijah, he builds an altar, and he just gives a simple prayer. Whoosh, fire comes. Comes down on the altar. And what happens is at the end of chapter 18, this is what it says. It's on the screen. It writes, when all the people saw it, the fire... They said, the Lord, Yahweh, he is God. The power of the Lord was on Elijah. And he tucked his mantle under his belt and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So 1 Kings 18 ends with Elijah filled with the power of God. Everyone's saying, Yahweh is God. And then we get to chapter 19, the chapter we read. Something happens. Elijah enters stage four. And I hope by looking at Elijah's story, for those of us here, we could uh, kind of resonate with how this relates to our story by seeing three things about what happens to Elijah. Number one is the crisis of faith. Secondly is the silent journey. And lastly, the presence of God. The crisis of faith, silent journey, presence of God. First, the crisis of faith. 
So again, Elijah, he just destroyed the prophets of Baal. Both Elijah and King Ahab, they're going to the city Jezreel. And then a couple of things happen that are interesting. First, King Ahab, you're going to notice that he, in chapter 19, he tells his wife Jezebel what happened. And the reason why Ahab does that is because Ahab, even though he's the king of Israel, he's kind of cowardly. He's somebody who's really weak and passive versus Jezebel. Like, you don't mess with her. Like, she is Jada Pink Smith, ancient world. That's what's going on here. Like, she is the one who has the pants, wears the pants in the family. And when she hears what Elijah did to the prophets, she vows, like, this guy's going to die. Like, he's going to die today. Look what it says in verses 1 to 2. Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. And so Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, may the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. You're dead. And when Elijah hears about this, he becomes afraid and he runs away. Look at verse three to four. Then Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there but went on a day's journey into the wilderness. I know when we see like, oh, he went to Beersheba, we think, oh, we don't really think much about that. In the ancient world, they would completely understand what's going on here. So this is on the map on the screen here. You'll see that he's in Jezreel. Beersheba, it's past Israel, it's past Judah, and it's all the way south. That's 100 miles. He went as south as humanly possible. It's like today saying, oh, this guy's in trouble, so he ran away to Mexico. That's kind of what's going on with, uh, with Elijah. He ran away to, to Mexico. And the reason why he ran away is he's not just hiding out. It's not like he's just waiting for, Je- for Jezebel to pass away. But he's retiring as a prophet. He sends his servant away going, hey, I'm done. He goes and leaves the land because he's like, I'm not going to do this anymore. And the reason why he's not going to do this anymore is because Elijah, he is depressed. He is completely disillusioned with everything that has just happened. Look at verse 4. It says, he sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die. He said, I have had enough. Lord, take my life for I'm no better than my father's. What's going on? Like Elijah, just a chapter ago, he was like courageous and he was battling prophets and he saw the fire of God. Like, why is he all like freaked out and hiding and being depressed like this? And the reason why is because Elijah, he is disillusioned. He was a prophet and he thought that Israel was going to repent. He thought after the fire came, literal fire came down, and the people saw it, he thought, now they will return to Yahweh. But when he found out Jezebel didn't repent, and she's like, you're dead, it was almost like, what was the point of all that? Like, God did everything he could, and the people's hearts still don't change. He is no better than his fathers, because all the prophets before him, they couldn't change Israel. And so he was going through a crisis, which was making him question just everything. And in a similar way, I think for a lot of us here, there are moments in our lives that cause a, a crisis of faith. And when you go through that, like, it makes you question everything. By the way, I'm not talking about like when you fail your final. That's pain. That's not a crisis. Like a crisis, like everything comes into question. There's a German philosopher, his name is Karl Jasper. He describes these moments, these life-altering moments or this life-altering season. That's what he calls boundary situations. It's on the screen, a definition. Boundary situations are a moment of crisis that forces us to question our identity, our place in the world, our existence. You just start questioning everything. And usually what happens is when you go through a boundary situation, it just forces our defenses to break. Our natural defenses of how we operate in the world, it just kind of shatters and things start to get exposed. Jasper, Carl Jasper, he says there's typically four types of 
boundary situations that humans go through, and I just think they're helpful categories for us to consider. Here's the first boundary situation that human beings go through. The first one is categorized as suffering, a boundary situation of suffering. This could be physical, where you're sick, where you're going through, you're aging, something's just happening to your bodies. It could be emotional, where you're just going through distress. It could be psychological, it could be relational. But this is a type of suffering that you're just kind of going through, and it's just causing you to just awaken these visceral emotions that are down there. I knew back in the day, there was a guy who was a Christian, hardcore John MacArthur guy. Like, he loved John MacArthur. He loved reading his Bible. He was all about, like, reading verses, verse by verse. And every problem you had, the response was the same. You just need the Word of God. You just need the Word of God. And he was, as a youth group student, like, all the youth group kids, like, loved this guy. He's like, that's a godly man, because he's all about the Word of God. Fast forward a couple years later, he got married, and man, his marriage was rough. Deep marriage issues hard marriage issues. Because that line to his wife, you just need a word of God, didn't work on her. That did not work. And it was weird, like, he had everything together before that. He knew how church should be, he knew what the Bible said, but marriage was this boundary situation for him that he just had no verse to help him. It was forcing him to reveal something that was going on deep down in his heart. Here's a second boundary situation that's there. It's not suffering, but this is another one, death. This is when someone you love passes away. I had a friend back in college. She like loved God. She was someone where when the pastor would say, God is good, you hear that voice go, amen. Like she was that person. Like she just like, yeah, God is good. She would evangelize to me in college because I wasn't a Christian back in college. Like she was like that girl who just was on fire for God. But then something happened at the end of college where she found out her father got diagnosed with cancer. And after that, he went fast and he spiraled fast and he passed away. And she spiraled too. Like she just disappeared. Like she wasn't in her campus ministry anymore. She didn't really go to church anymore. Instead, she, you know, rumors of her just like drinking and sleeping around with different guys. And the reason why was when you talked to her, did she know God was good? Yeah, yeah, she knew. But did she believe it? I don't know. I'm not sure she would say she believed it. Because that moment when her father was sick, it revealed like what she really believed. Here's her third boundary situation. Not just suffering death, but guilt or shame. This is when we do something wrong or someone does something wrong to you. And there's this deep guilt or shame that just unleashes something inside of you. This is when a husband and wife, they've been married for a long time and they have a great marriage. But then after 10 years, the wife discovers her husband had a secret affair the entire time. That's shame. That's guilt. What is your theology going to do with that? What is God going to do with that? And you get disillusioned. Here's the last boundary situation. The last one he calls absurdity. Absurdity is when you experience paradoxes and contradictions in life and your Christian world doesn't know how to make sense of it. So for example, a lot of you grew up in the church, you were taught God is good. You were taught as a kid, God is good all the time. Amen. But that gets really challenged when you see kids getting slaughtered in Israel, when you see kids getting tortured in Israel. Can you really say God is good? It's hard to make sense of that. Or if you're told, hey, the church is the body of Christ. You grow in the church, you receive love from the church, and you go to church, and the church just like jacks you. The church is filled with abusive people, abusive leaders, betrayal of friends. It is really hard to make sense of that truth with the reality that you're experiencing. 
Or some of you, you're told, you know, God, he rewards not the fruitful, but the faithful. Just be faithful and God will bless you. And again, you accept that, but when life goes on and you see reality is, well, people who aren't faithful, they get rewarded too. In fact, they get rewarded more than you. What the heck? And that's when you kind of just become disillusioned and the Christian life doesn't really make sense anymore. And oftentimes when people run into this, they respond one of two ways. You either become really bitter and disillusioned or something deeper emerges out of this experience for you. Here's a typical way people respond. When you run into that, some people, they respond by the journey's over. Their journey with God, it's done. They might still say they're a Christian. They might even go to church every once in a while. But for all intents and purposes, their life reveals they are nominal Christians now. It's like, dude, what's the point? What's the point? I, I remember one person was telling me, you know, life is hard. I'm just taking a break from God. And I was I didn't know you could do that as a Christian. But I, oh, I get what you're saying. Like you're, you're still, you're not denouncing God, but you're just kind of done journeying with him. You're, I'm just going to focus on my family now. I'm just going to focus on my career now. I'll do the God thing every once in a while, but you're kind of done with the journey. You're not going to grow anymore. Some people are just, the journey's over. I think most of us, though, the way we respond is you don't end the journey, but what you do is you, you go back to stages one to three. Uh, you're in stage four, it's too hard, so you just go back. You go, you know, it's hard, all this stuff is happening. I'm just going to read my Bible. Or I'm just going to go to this, like, retreat. Or I'm just going to serve in the youth group or something like that because that's the only thing you know how to do. That's all you know. I know a pastor, he pastored a church, destroyed the church, was really abusive, did a lot of bad things. That was his stage four moment. That was the moment I really believe God was confronting him and he could have done deep work and transformation. Instead, he's just pastoring another church. I was like, oh, you double down. You just went back to stage three. You're just going to serve and you're moving on, but you haven't moved forward. And a lot of us, that's what we do. We just double down in what we know because we don't want to deal with what's happening. But the last thing you could do is, if you don't have to end the journey, you don't have to go back, but if you choose to move forward, you could practice a whole new way of experiencing God. And these are the moments that the real you gets exposed and the real you, something is slowly being transformed. And so before we move on, can I ask a quick question? Are any of you going through a boundary situation in your life? Is God bringing something in your life where all the defenses are meant to go down? Some of you might be, yeah, it's happening. Your marriage, it's pretty rough. And you think it's her, you think it's him, but no, no, something's going on. Something's happening. God's trying to get your attention. Or some of you might be because you're a parent. Like, man, you had it together until you became a mom or a dad. Now life is really hard. Or some of you might be a career crisis. It could be a sickness or death, a diagnosis. It could be aging. And just know the main struggle you are wrestling with, it is not the crisis itself, but what the crisis is revealing, what's coming out of you. There's a lot of pain and sins and idols that you have not dealt with. You have buried that thing. And God's like, no, 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 I need that. Let's look at that. Some of you, you have no idea what I'm talking about. You're like, dude, why are you so intense, man? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Like, life is good. Life is all good. I'm good. All good. And I would say, you know, that might be true where, yeah, maybe you're not experiencing anything right now, but maybe you did in the past. And again, you just bury that emotion. Your parents, they're divorced. You were raised by a single mom or single dad, and you think you're okay. Mm -hmm. Or you're somebody like, you know, you experience a lot of neglect or even abuse. You're like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm over it. I'm over it. Mm -hmm. 
you might have you might have gone forward, or you might have gone, you might have gone on, but you haven't gone forward because those emotions that you just have not really dealt with it. Rankin Wilborn again. I like what he says. He says in that same article, he says, "quote The problem with bearing your emotions is that they don't go away; they're just buried alive. And when stress piles onto that old wooden bridge, the cracks get revealed, and our emotions leak out onto the people around us." No matter how careful we try to be, in other words, your pain gets revealed, your past pains by your present relationships. That's what's going on, and God's like, "Let's go there." So, what do you do? What do you do in these crisis moments? And this is where stage four is interesting. There's not much you do, but there's a lot God does, and that leads to the silent journey. Notice Elijah; he is ready to die. He is ready to. I'm just done. But then God comes, and notice how God responds to him. Initially, in verse five to six, look what it says: An angel touched him, and the angel told him, "Get up and eat." And then he looked, and there at his head was a loaf of bread baked over hot stones and a jug of water. So he ate and he drank and he lay down again. This happened twice. This angel goes, "Hey, you need to get energy. You need to get strength.、Uh, don't just don't just pray. Don't just read your Bible. Like, eat some food." And for a lot of us here, if you're going through a rut, it might be you know you just need to slow down. You need to take care of your health, your body. That's like the beginning of this journey for you to really awaken to God. Is take care of your physical, your physical being, because you're not just a spirit; you're also a body. And not only that, but he tells them you have to do. You have to. I'm going to lead you somewhere right now, and after you eat your food, look at verse seven to eight. What it says. Then the angel of the Lord returned for a second time and touched them, and he said, "Get up and eat, or the journey will be too much for you." So he got up, ate, and drank, and then on the strength from that food, he walked forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Again, one of those things we just bypass over, going, "Oh, he went to Horeb. That's a big deal." You know why? You know how far Horeb is. So yeah, let's look at the map. So this is from Jezreel to Bathsheba. That's about a hundred miles from Bathsheba to Horeb. Next slide, all the way down there. That's two hundred miles. You know how long it takes to travel two hundred miles back then? Forty days and forty nights. That's what it says in the text. No car, no AC, no cell phone, no donkey, no horse, no company, nothing. For forty days in the desert, just walking by himself, depressed, complete silence, nothing going on in his heart for forty days. Why does God have Elijah travel forty days alone in the midst of his deepest, darkest days of his life? Jim Collins he wrote this book called Great by Choice, and he shares this story back in 1911. There were two expedition teams. They were planning to make a journey to the South Pole, and both of these teams they had to strategize how they get there because it's dangerous going to South Pole. Windy, super freezing cold, limited resources. So, how can you make it to the South Pole intact? And so, the first team they had a strategy, and their strategy was a sporadic pace. Meaning, when the weather was good, you go hard. You travel as much ground as possible when the weather is good. But when the weather is bad, stay in your tent, wait for the storm to pass through, and once it dies down, you go hard again. That was the first team. The second team had a different strategy. Instead of going sporadically, they said, "Let's go consistently." So, meaning, if the weather is good or if the weather is bad, 20 miles, no matter what, we're always going to try our best to go 20 miles despite the weather. You know what happened? That first team, the team that went sporadically, they all died. Not a single one made it to the South Pole. That second team that went that steady 20 miles, it was hard, but they made it. 
And for a lot of you today, you are following the sporadic pace. That's your Christian life. When the weather is good to you, you go hard. When you have free time, oh, you'll serve God. When life is not busy, oh yeah, then I'll be with him. When you feel like, yeah, you know, I feel happy these days, then you'll go all out. Yeah, I'm going to be in the presence of God. But when life is hard, when the weather is rough, I have a newborn baby. Oh, I need to take, I just can't handle this. I just, I'm just need five years. Just give me five years and then I'll come back, God. This internship, you know, this internship is really intense. And I know it's hard, but I just, I, it's too tough. I just need a little bit of time to myself or I'm just in this low mood. I'm feeling depressed these days. I just need to kind of back away and just, you know, when work gets less crazy, then I'll seek you again, God. When my kids, again, when they turn five or seven, they go to school, then I'll seek you, God. Oh, when I feel better and a little bit more alive, then I'll serve you, God. And the problem is a lot of your faith ends up dead, just like so many people who take the same strategy. You go hard, you stop hard, but what ends up happening, you just stop. You just stop. Notice Elijah, man, was he struggling. Low point, felt nothing. The presence of God was gone in his life. But he did not sit on a couch He was always moving. He didn't know why he was moving, but he was just moving, always active, always moving. And you need to be moving too. You gotta be moving. You gotta be moving. Where are you moving towards? Where are you moving towards? And that's where this passage is really interesting. Again, verse eight, where is Elijah going? 40 days, 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. You guys know what Horeb is? You might know it's a different name if you're familiar with the Bible. This is Mount Sinai. He's going to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. It's where he revealed himself to the Israel through the Ten Commandments. In other words, Horeb is where you experience the presence of God. And he is leading Elijah to go there because what Elijah needs most in that moment is the presence of God in his life. You know, sometimes when I cook for my family, it's not often, sometimes, when I cook for them, I'll use the blender. And if you guys use a blender, you'll know like it's so loud and we're used to it. But like my daughter, who's two years old, she's like, what is going on? Like, what is this loud noise that sounds like it's murdering somebody? So she's two and she's just like super scared when she hears me pressing the blender. And my wife, what she'll do is when she sees my daughter, she'll just go up to her and just like hold her and cover her ears. And they're both like watching me as I'm pressing this blender that's like super loud. And what's interesting about that moment is that child therapists still look at that going, that's really good. That's a really good thing's going on. You know what's happening there? By my wife going to my daughter and just holding on to her, they're producing endorphins, which is like the, the bonding gene that's coming to connect them together. You're producing attachment. You're teaching your daughter to lean upon you, to know that you're trustworthy because your presence is there. That's even more important than me turning off the blender. It's just a parent being there, present with their child while something is happening. And God, he's telling us this is what we need. What you need in the midst of the storms of your life, more than the storms ending, more than your circumstances changing, is the presence of God and learning how to be attached to him. Because there are way more storms that are going to happen in your life, way more hardships than the current one you're in right now, and you have to learn to attach to him. Because right now, you are not attached to him. You believe in him, but when you're in trouble, you turn to your friends 
You turn to your addiction. You turn to Netflix. You turn whatever coping mechanism you have to get you through this current season, and you are not more satisfied. You are not more alive because of that, because God's saying, you are meant to be attached to me. I am meant to be your automatic who you turn to. And he is trying to teach you to come to him because that's what you need most in the midst of the storms that you go through, his presence in your life. Where are you at? Do you feel his presence? What pace are you going in your life right now? I feel like at our church here, we have normalized the sporadic pace. It is so normal for you to go hard to love Jesus and it's so normal for you just to disappear when life is hard for you. That's like the OC thing. When life is hard, God is gone. When you're busy, the practices are over. And when you're suffering, the last thing you do is go to God. And you're not more restored when you come back. You're more tired, you're more grumbly, you're more angry, and you think you need a vacation. Whereas in reality, you need his presence. You really need his presence. And that leads to the last point, the presence of God. What does this look like to be present with him? I think this is the most interesting part of the whole story, which I'm so sad. We, only have, we don't have much time to go through this, but I could do a whole sermon on this one. But very interesting is Elijah, he goes to Horeb. And for the first time in the story, he interacts with God himself. God himself now comes. And look what it says in verse nine. Suddenly the word of the Lord came to Elijah and God said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? God's asking the question not because he's like, oh, Elijah, I didn't expect you. Like that's not what's happening. He's prompting Elijah He's getting Elijah to figure out for himself, like, hey, do you have a reason to be here? And look what Elijah says in verse 10. Elijah replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, tore down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I am, I alone am left, and they're looking for me to take my life. What's Elijah saying here? He's complaining. He's grumbling. Nobody's been faithful except me. They all abandoned you. I alone am left. And I'm not sure if you ever had moments like that. I definitely had, where it's like, I'm the only righteous one left. And how does God respond to him? Does God go, no, you're so wrong. How dare you talk like that? Or does God go, let me tell you what's going on? No, look what it says in verse 11. Go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. He's like, okay, something's going to happen. Come to the mountain and and I'm going to show you my presence. If you're Elijah and you know your Bible, you're like, oh, something's going to happen. Because Moses, when God showed him his presence, fire. If you're Israel, earthquake. But verse 11, 13, so fascinating. Look what happens. At that moment, the Lord passed by, a great and mighty wind. So this crazy wind came, tearing the mountains, and the cliffs were shattering. But the Lord was not in the wind. So, oh, no God. And then after the wind, there was this earthquake. The whole room started shaking, but still, no God after the earthquake. And then after the earthquake, fire, just like it happened in chapter 18. Oh, now God's going to show up. But the Lord was not in the fire. And watch this, after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in the mantle. Oh, now God is here. That's why he covers his face. God is now here. He wasn't in the wind. He wasn't in the earthquake. He wasn't in the fire. He was in this low whisper that you could barely hear. What's God doing here? He's trying to teach Elijah something that I think we have to also learn ourselves. Elijah was used to experiencing God only one way. Wind, fire, earthquake, dramatic. And so when God, when he was at Mount Carmel battling the prophets, he said, oh, God's going to be here. But when Elijah was in danger, when he was running away in the desert for 40 days, when he was depressed under the broom tree, God was just not present to him. He was absent. 
I think for us, that's one reason why we struggle so much to experience God's presence, especially if you've been journeying with God for a long time. Is we're used to experiencing God one way, and God, he wants to mature us. He wants us to know, I don't just relate to you that one way when you were a teenager. It's called, it's growth, it's maturity. I had a friend back in college where we had lots of fun together. We played games, we watched movies, we hang out with, he was the best in large groups, just like really funny. But man, he's that guy, if you guys know that person, when you're by himself with him, one-on-one, really awkward, like really awkward. And I kind of dreaded carpooling with him because it was just awkward the whole time. And I realized, oh, that revealed the depth of our relationship. There wasn't that deep. It was just filled with activities. I did not know how to relate to him. I think for a lot of us, that's like us and God. You're used to the rallies, the mission trips, the, when you're at church on Sundays, you're used to experiencing God's presence, but you don't spend most of your life in church. You don't spend most of your life on mission trips. It is oftentimes most of your life in the ordinary, the silent, the quiet, and God's saying, I'm there too. Oh, I am so present there. And not only is he there, he has something to say to you. I was talking to our prayer, we're meeting with, we have a prayer group that we meet and we're kind of talking saying, you know, when we go to God, oftentimes in prayer, we have an agenda. God, I need to tell you something or you need to do this. But we're learning like, you know, when we pray to God, it's, it's not just us having an agenda. You know, he has an agenda with you. Like, oh, you have something to tell me. I have something to tell you. He has something to tell you. If you have a prayer list of things that you want to talk about with him, just know he has a list too that he wants to talk about with you. But you're too busy to hear him. You're moving all the time. You're running around all the time. You're reading all the time. And God's saying, you have to be still. Be silent. And there are so many things he has to say to you. And we know because he has something to say to Elijah. What does he tell Elijah at the very end? When Elijah just, all of a sudden after all that, like, oh my gosh. What God does is go back, go back to where you came from. Because there's something I'm going to do. There is something that's going to happen, and even though it's really hard for you, he says, go back, and he tells him to anoint these three people because he's going to restore Israel. And it's very fascinating. In the last verse, he says, and 7,000 people he's going to leave in Israel. There are 7,000 things that you don't know God is doing that he is doing. And God wants you to hear that. And it is because you have a plan of what's going to happen in your life. God has a different plan. And the way you experience God's presence fully is you surrender to his plan. You surrender your will to his will. And that is so hard for us to do, to let go of what you want God to do in your life, to change your circumstances as you don't like it. The hardest thing is you have to let that go. Let God be God. That's stage four. That's the only way you can move forward in maturity with him. And the reason why it is so hard is because of this thing that's on the screen up here called the wall. There is a wall The wall is you. It's your will that you don't want to give up. And that's why it takes so darn long for us to truly let God be God. So just know this is the the pathway we have to move forward that we're going to talk about next week. What is the wall? How do we get past it? Because in the gospel, you are forgiven through Jesus Christ. You are loved by the Father. And you have full access to, God, access to God's presence. But you don't experience it because something is blocking you. You are stopping yourself from receiving the full riches and experiencing the full riches. Because if you were experiencing the full riches of God, you would not be as apathetic, as angry, as depressed, as snarky, as sarcastic as you are right now. You would be growing in peace, love, joy, 
gentleness, but something's blocking you. And God, he's doing something to do a work in that. My kids, they're, uh, at age two, they become terrible, the terrible twos. And I tell, and you know, even Izzy, my daughter, she's kind of acting crazy right now. And I tell my wife, like, what do we do with her? And I remember my wife, she said, I have to break her will. I was like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? She's like, this is the time. It happened with Judah. It happened with Izzy or with, with Emma, our second. I need to break her will. I'm like, what does that mean? And she was like, it's something along the lines of Isabella thinks she could do what she wants. And I need to lay down the law. Like, you can't do it. And that's how the first two kids changed. I was like, wow, it sounds like trauma. Like, what's going on there? But there's something to that. It's like, oh, your will has to break. And if you humble yourself, you will break it yourself. Or for your own sake, because if we don't do that for our kids, they will be the brattiest people in the world. God has to break their will. God has to break your will. And if we're honest, your will, it has not been broken because you have not surrendered to God yet. You believe in God, you love God, but have you surrendered to him? This is the work of the spirit that we need. And so in order to get us started in this, we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, what we're going to do during the second half of the journey of faith is we want to create an intentional space for us to be in prayer. It won't be long, but I realize sometimes we just kind of quickly jump through, go, oh, you know, message, heard, go back to my life, trunk or treat. But what we really want to do is let's take a moment while we're all here in the same space to pause and to create an intentional space of prayer because it's only the work of the Spirit that can help us in the second half. And so uh, Pastor Sam, he's actually going to come up and lead us in a little bit, but as I invite the praise team, can I just close us in prayer? And then we're just going to have a brief, time, a brief time for us to have space to reflect, to respond, and to praise. So let me pray for us at this time. Father, I lift up everyone here to you, and Lord, I know for a lot of us, we've been journeying with you for a long time. And some of us, Lord, the journey is very new. But I pray that we can recognize that in the story of Scripture, there are so many people who have followed you their whole life, and yet they have not been broken yet. That they, oh Lord, love you, but they have not surrendered. And God, ultimately what we need to do is surrender our will to you. And that is so hard, God. And so, Lord, I pray that you could help us to, at first, give us enough strength to, and awareness to humble ourselves. But Lord, you might need to break our spirit at times. And I just pray that it would not leave us shattered when we walk away from you, but we could be a people that would see this 